Hey guys, it's Noah. Before we get into our next episode, I just want to encourage you to check out the description of this episode. While you're there, you will see references to all of our social media accounts. Please pause the podcast and take a minute to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and even TikTok. Also, while you're there, you will see a link to check out our blogs. I highly encourage you to go to couchfanaticsports.com to read our daily content. Lastly, you can find our YouTube channel in the description of this episode. Take a minute to subscribe to the Couch Fanatic Sports YouTube channel for weekly content and interviews. Now, I just want to thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Couch Fanatic Sports Podcast. Please feel free to download, rate, and subscribe to our pod. Now, let's get into the latest episode. What's up? And welcome back to the Couch Fanatic Sports Podcast, episode 12. I'm your host, Noah Domang, and we have a super episode today for a Super Bowl recap for a super boring game. Not really, but the Super Bowl happened this weekend. Uh, we're going to start off with that. We're going to get into some NBA talk, uh, some Pelicans talk, especially if you're a Pelicans fan. You're, you kind of know what's going on with this team right now, but we'll get to that. A uh, little MVP conversation in the NBA. Uh, talk about how LeBron's still you know, just kind of doing the thing after all these years. And then we'll wrap up with some MLB talk and rants about Rob Manfred. So let's just kind of get started with the... We can start with the Super Bowl talk. Obviously, it's the big game. That's what we're going to start with. Um, in case you missed it, if you did miss it, I don't know what you're doing here. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm just your source of all things sports, which, like, thanks. But if you did miss it, the Buccaneers kind of just beat up on the Chiefs on Sunday, winning the Super Bowl, winning Super Bowl 55. Um, couple of the storylines, Tom Brady, obviously, has won his seventh Super Bowl. He has appeared now in 10 Super Bowls, and the next closest starting quarterback has five appearances. The team with the most championships, like Super Bowls and their franchise history, the Steelers and the Patriots, they both have six. Tom Brady has seven. Tom Brady as a franchise would be the most Super Bowls by franchise in NFL history. He is that guy. I, we're we're going to talk about it some more, but Tom Brady is just that guy. He is the biggest storyline in this game. He went to a Buccaneers team that was 7-9 and nine last year and turned them into Super Bowl world champions this year. And yes, did he bring in more people? Did they make other acquisitions than just Tom? Yes, 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 of course. But he did that. He went in there and established a culture, and he did the thing. Uh, kind of touching on the you know who he helped, brought in. He brought in Gronk, brought in A.B., Brought in Fournette, uh, brought in, I mean, just they, then you add in the fact that the Buccaneers drafted an offensive tackle uh, in the first round and then safety in the second round who are both starting. And all of a sudden, you're slowly plugging in just all of the little holes that your team had. You're slowly plugging in these holes that kind of was like your problem last year. Now, all of a sudden, you don't, your holes are different or your holes from last season might be strengths now because of how well you plug them in. That's kind of what happened with the Bucks. It's kind of it's kind of like what the Saints were gonna like trying to do in seventeen. Uh, obviously, they didn't have the new quarterback aspect, but they plugged in their holes through the draft that year. They took Marshawn Lattimore, the British week was a corner. They went get a corner. They took Ryan Ramchek, who ended up being all pro tackle. They took Alvin Kamara. They took. Uh, Trey Hendrickson on the D-line and a couple other guys, and all of a sudden, uh, Marcus Williams, all of a sudden, all of their holes were now filled. Now it was young talent, but they went from a you know mediocre team to a team that won free play away from an NFC Championship game. You know? So the, the Bucks kind of kind of threaded the needle here of, you know, filling in the holes that they needed to go on and win the championship and then, you know, actually doing it, like establishing a plan and actually staying to it and completing it. Um, talking about the game, I guess we can talk about the actual game. For me, the biggest moment in that game was when it was 7-3. to three. The Chiefs had a goal line stop on fourth down against the Bucks, and then they ended up stalling. Uh, their punter kicked a, like a, Deep ball, like like, I think the Bucks ended up getting the ball on like their own thirty because it was just like a bomb of a punt. Then they called like a holding, had to re kick. All of a sudden the punter shanked it. All of a sudden the Bucks go down the field, go up fourteen to three, and at that point you're like, oh, this that's not good. Like looking back on it, that was probably the point in the game where the game switched. But like we've seen the Chiefs do this so many times when they fall behind 
and like probably until there's about six minutes left in the fourth quarter, I still thought the Chiefs could come back and win. Even when there were six minutes left, I thought they could still, but I didn't think it was likely. When the Chiefs were down, I think it was 22 points with like 10 minutes left, I legit thought they were going to come back and win. I wasn't sold like, um, like oh my gosh, like this is definitely going to happen, but I was like, uh, this is like, this is pretty likely. Like, if this happens, I would not be surprised. Because, like, we've just seen them do it so many times. Kind of talking about Mahomes for a second before we kind of talk more about the Bucks. If you look at the stats, Mahomes didn't play good. If you watch the game, you realize that's not true. Ten years from now, there are going to be a lot of uh, young kids, and there's going to be a lot of people who maybe maybe didn't get to watch the game live or maybe just like kind of forgot, you know, 15 years from now, whenever they're saying uh, like debate, debating the goat stuff. And they say, well, Mahomes lost to Brady and he didn't play good in it because the stats show that like, I'll, I'll go look it up now. While I kind of talk, make my point here, but Mahomes on multiple occasions hit a receiver directly in the face in the end zone. And they just missed it. Mahomes made some of the most incredible throws I've ever seen in my entire life that were just incompletions, including back-to-back plays in the fourth quarter whenever they were down 31-9. First one, he was running around for his life. So, like, let's see. Mahomes finished 26-49, to so, you know, about a little bit better than 50%. 270 yards, no touchdowns, two picks. You know, not great. It's a little bit better than I thought it was going to end up being, uh, like, just kind of watching the game live, but it's not good. Um, So, if you... Go back to this sequence. Mahomes is running around for his life, running around for his life. He's getting spun around. He's uh, The defender's got him in his grasp. He spins him around, and as he spins, Mahomes spins with him twice to get the momentum to be able to sling the ball out as he's getting spun down to the ground into the back left corner of the end zone. And the Chiefs receiver like dives and like, almost makes like an acrobatic catch in the end zone. And Mahomes put it like right where only his receiver can get it in that throw. I was like, oh my God, that might be one of the best throws I've ever seen. And then the next play happened whenever he was getting tackled and he literally threw the ball for a touch. I mean, not a touchdown. It should have been. He threw the ball as he was getting tackled. His body was completely parallel with the ground. His arm was throwing as if it was a submarine style pitcher or like if you're a Red Sox fan, you understand this. If not, you can kind of just like, I don't know, look it up on Google. The plays when Dustin Bedroya would be diving like trying to turn two when somebody's coming in with a hard slide and he would dive across and throw like an underhand thing, uh, like with his body parallel to the ground. Mahomes did that for like a 30 yard should have been touchdown pass. The ball hit the receiver directly in the face mask, like straight up directly in the face mask. And he just didn't catch it. If he comes out with that catch, all of a sudden it's 31 to, you know, 31, 16, maybe it's 31 to 17. If they go for two and get it, and you got, I think it was nine minutes left or so at that point. And like all of a sudden, we got ourselves a ball game. Like we got ourselves the duel that we were hoping for. But the Chiefs just stalled all game. Anytime they would move the ball, they would stall. As you can see, they kicked three field goals. You know, because they were stalling. They couldn't. They couldn't finish drives. Uh, they. I don't want to say they. I don't want to say they didn't have a problem moving the ball because they kind of did, but it definitely wasn't as bad as holding to nine points because they just couldn't finish. I mean, they turned the ball over twice on downs. Um, Looking at it now, and then the interception in the end zone by Devin White at the end of the game. But, I mean, it's three times that they put themselves in position to score points on top of the three field goals, and they couldn't convert because they just couldn't finish it. Um, You know, credit to the Bucks. This is the first time Mahomes in his entire career has been held to nine points. I mean, less than 10 points. So, you know, nine points are, you know, yada, yada, yada. It's actually the first time in his career he's been held to th- less than 13 points, but nevertheless. Um, so how did they do it? Uh, Todd Bowles, number one, he is a great defensive coordinator. He is like a tremendous defensive coordinator. He may not be a good head coach, but he can coach a defense. Um, that's a guy that you want on your team no matter what, especially if you're an offensive-minded head coach. To where like he can really just go ahead and like do what he wants with his guys on the defense and say, look, listen, I'm gonna handle my offense. You take care of your defense and we'll be good. Um he's had a plan. Uh, if you remember the Chiefs played the Bucks 
uh, probably week 12-ish off the top of my head, maybe a little bit earlier. And Tyreek Hill went up for like 200 in the first quarter. Um, I think two or three touchdowns. It was just a crazy, crazy performance. And then like they kind of made an adjustment in that game. And then they came back and they almost won. And I was like, oh, you know, that was impressive. Was it really an adjustment though? Or was it the Chiefs like kind of taking their foot off the gas because they're kind of prone to doing that? Obviously, it was just an adjustment because the Chiefs just kind of had no answer for it. Uh, the, it looked like they were playing a simple defense, too. It looked like they were just playing a simple cover two, you know, two deep safeties defense. And it's just like, you drive the ball down the field, you establish the run against us. Like, you have to. That's the only way you're going to beat us. You have to run the ball, you have to establish the run. You're going to have to go on 12 to 15 yard, uh, 12 to 15 play drives, and you're going to have to do that to beat us. And then the Chiefs just, you know, didn't do it. They couldn't do it. And it was the same thing that happened. And let's see, this would be week 12. And yeah, oh, wow, I nailed that. <laughs> Their week 12 matchup. Um, so, like, looking at, at the, okay, in the third quarter of that game on, the Buccaneers outscored the Chiefs, let's see, 17 to 7 in that game. Like in that second quarter, I mean in that second half, seventeen to seven, and then thirty-eight to, I mean thirty-one to nine in the Super Bowl. So I mean, since they made that adjustment at halftime, they have been just, you know, dom- dominant. They've been dominating them. Um, I'm very surprised that Mahomes and the Chiefs couldn't make a, an adjustment. I think Mahomes is so good. We kind of forgot about Andy Reid's biggest flaws as a coach. Um. Kind of pre-Mahomes, his biggest flaws were, you know, one, time management, and two, making, you know, mid-game adjustments. So, like, it's, it shouldn't be surprising that an Andy Reid coach team couldn't make the adjustments mid-game, but at the same time, you're like, no, there's no way somebody's going to hold down Mahomes for this long. Like, they're going to score a touchdown eventually. Like, it's the Chiefs. They have Mahomes, and they have Travis Kelsey, and they have Tyreek Hill. And for the record, Travis Kelsey had a big day. I think it was like 12, uh, 10 catches, 135 yards. He had, you know, he had a really good day. He had a Travis Kelsey day. But on the other side of the field, so did Gronk as the other tight end. He also had, I think it was six catches for six, seven yards and two touchdowns, which we can talk about Super Bowl MVP. Um, it's pretty obvious that Brady would have got it regardless. Um, I saw some tweets saying that Todd Bowl should have got it. Which, like, I get it. Like, their defense was just dominant. But um, I don't know about that one. I, I don't know about uh, coaches getting it. If I had an MVP vote, which, I mean, it's not really how that works, but if I had to decide, I probably would have gave it to Devin White. Uh, he led the game in tackles. He had an interception. i have to pull it up now. Uh, he was just kind of all over the field. He was flying around the field. Let's look. I'm pulling up the actual box score with his stats. Let's see, he had 12 tackles, uh, two tackles for loss, a pass defense, and an uh, interception. That feels, <laughs> compared to everything else that happened on that day, feels good enough. I think that's better than the 200 yards and three touchdowns for Tom, which, I mean, Tom had a really good day. Looking at his passer rating, it was, you know, 125.8. That's a, it's a big time, that's a big time uh, game. It was a very efficient game. Then also looking at like a guy like Leonard Fournette. Leonard Fournette averaged 5.6 yards a carry. He went for 90 yards and a touchdown. Then he also caught four passes of 46 yards. So, I mean, if I had to give it to an offensive guy, it probably would have been Fournette. Um, obviously, Gronk's the one that scored the touchdowns, but I think Fournette did a lot of the dirty work, kind of getting them there. And then he had that one big touchdown run. But I definitely understand Brady getting it, especially with it being his seventh Super Bowl win. And, you know, the fact that he was so efficient, he only he threw for 200 yards and three touchdowns, and he kind of just didn't break a sweat doing it. Like, he looked good all game. And if the game was closer, he would have threw a lot more in the second half, which would have, you know, made his stats better, yada, yada, yada. And they would have – he would have had better stats. They would have – the game would have been closer. And we could have justified it more. But I kind of respect the fact that he got up there – Gave him a big league and lead in the first half. And then they said, all right, we're going to play keep away. 
defense, like, let's go. Like, you can pin your ears back now and go get them. And that's what they did. And it was very evident that the Chiefs kind of just had none of their offensive linemen. Um, you could see the fact that they were missing both their tackles and then uh, the, the doctor that opted out because of COVID and all these other guys. I think the final count was three or four of the starting offensive linemen for the Chiefs were out that game. And that's not an excuse. It's not me trying to make an excuse. It's just the reality of it. And it was very evident considering Mahomes, like as soon as the ball snapped, there was somebody on top of him. Uh, Jason Pierre-Paul played a tremendous game. Shaq Barrett played a tremendous game. Like the entire defensive line, like <laughs> I saw some people saying like the, the, the entire defensive line should have just got the MVP for that game because that's that's what won them that game, which, yeah, I mean, they were the most important part of that game. The way that they put the pressure on Mahomes, the way that they, you know, they just, they lived in the backfield. I mean, the Dominican Sue had a sack and a half, like, and I, I didn't even say his name, um, but especially JPP, especially um, Shaq Barrett. Shaq Barrett hit um, Patrick Holmes four times. JPP, I'm Apparently he didn't hit him once, but I'm like I vividly remember him being in the backfield quite a few times. Um, there was one bull rush, I think it was on Shaq Barrett's sack actually, that JPP just tore up. Uh, Jason Pierre-Paul just tore up the right tackle on the Chiefs and like just dominated him like straight back on a bull rush, like just an inside, like an outside in bull rush, and. Like that's that's what won them the game. Like their defensive line was so good compared to the Chiefs offensive line, which just played so bad. And Mahomes can never get comfortable. As soon as the ball snapped, he was looking to run around like he was like nervous because he didn't he knew he had no time. And um I was actually watching the game with my dad and he kept being like, dude, like stay in the pocket. Like he's running as soon as it gets it. And like I, I kinda agree. Um he was he's definitely a drifter in the pocket. He still doesn't really understand how to work a pocket yet it's getting better but um at the same time you kind of felt like yeah had to because the problem is like whenever you're not protected you feel like you got to run around to like help protect yourself out by extra time but then whenever you're not the one time that they actually have a pocket for you whenever you do that like you're screwed because you messed yourself up and you ran out of the pocket and all of a sudden you get sacked it's just a bad it's just a bad mixture there it's like uh damned if you do damned if you don't kind of thing um, but you know, congrats to the Bucks, man. They showed up there. They played ball. Uh, Brady just went through a gauntlet of Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and Patrick Mahomes, and on his way to win his seventh championship. On the bright side for him, if that wasn't enough, <laughs> this is gonna be stupid. Are you ready? He has finally won a Super Bowl against a team that has a non-animal mascot. So congrats to Tom. Because before that, he was 0-2. And if you don't know who the two losses were, it was to Eli Manning and the Giants. Twice. So kids, I know what you're thinking. Tom Brady's a GOAT. But I bet you didn't realize Eli Manning beat him twice in the Super Bowl. And that, my my friends, is the reason why Eli Manning is... No, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, there's, there's really kind of nothing else to really say about the game. Um, kind of... Talking about the Bucks playoff run here for a minute. I think the most impressive part to me, like as I've been saying, was their defense. I haven't seen their defense play like that this season. Their defense was always good. It never felt dominant. And they were flat out dominant this postseason. What they did holding in check the Saints in their playoff game where the Saints were starting with the ball, you know, already in the red zone the first couple of drives um, because of, you know, long kick returns, long punt returns. And, you know, they just kind of held them to nothing or held them to a field goal. And then, you know, they really didn't let the Saints put up much points against them. Um, let's see. And the the three games against the Saint against Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, and Pat Mahomes, they gave up 20, 26, and 9. 20, 26, and 9. That is an average of about 18 points a game to three of the best quarterbacks of all time. You can make a case for all three of those quarterbacks being top five whenever it's all said and done. 20 years from now, you can make the case that those three quarterbacks were all in the top five. And that defense just kind of shut all three of them down. They just 
they never they never let them feel comfortable. Um, even even the Packers who put up twenty six on them, you're like, okay, like you know, the Packers won that battle. Well, if you watch the game, like the Packers never looked functional on on offense. Like if that makes sense, like they always looked they always looked uncomfortable. Let's say that they always felt like they were just kind of kind of just like bothered. Um, and that was the same thing as like in the championship game. Uh, I mean, in the Super Bowl, the Packers were missing David Bakhtiari. They're all pro tackle. And it showed because the Bucks lived in the backfield. They went out there and handled their business and pressured Aaron Rodgers and Rodgers couldn't get comfortable. And then they started to not use Aaron Jones as much as they should have. Just like the Chiefs, they just kind of didn't go to Clyde Edwards-Helaire when Clyde Edwards-Helaire was averaging i think he ended up averaging five yards a carry in that game and he didn't get much touches actually let's let's pull it up because i'm a clyde guy clyde got nine carries he averaged 7.1 yards per carry he also got two catches and he averaged 11.5 yards per catch but that's what the pressure does that's what happens whenever you fall behind big that's what happens whenever you're you know all this so what happens when you're already in a hole and then you start to press and then like they're in the backfield every play and you're like, well, no, we can't run. Like we got to, we got to get these points back. We, have, we need a big play. Send Tyreek Hill deep. Oh no, he, there's three people on him. All right, well, here you go. Oh, he dropped it. Okay. Um, cool. All right, well, where's Travis Kelsey? Oh, I'm getting sacked. Like, it's just like stuff like that. All of a sudden it's third down, it's third and long and you need eight yards to keep the drive going and you're down 12 points, 12, 14 points. And you're like, uh, uh, oh. This isn't good. So, you know, just a huge shout out to the Buccaneers defense. I, I keep saying that. Um, but that's that's just how I feel. The Bucs defense won this game. They went out there and they answered a lot of questions that we as fans had for them. I I really did not think the Bucs were gonna win the Super Bowl. I gotta be honest. Like, if you listen to this podcast, you know that. Um I thought they matched up really, really well with the Packers. I thought regardless when they played the Packers, the Packers were gonna win. I mean, the uh, Bucks were going to win in Lambeau, and then I thought the the Bucks were lose to the Saints in the the NFC Championship game. I definitely didn't think the Bucks were going to beat uh, the Chiefs. If you listen to the last episode, or if you want to go back and listen, um, I picked the Chiefs to win. I actually picked Chris Jones as the MVP because I thought I thought the Chiefs were going to make a statement on defense and go out there and get to Brady early and often. And that's the formula to beat the Bucks this year. You have to hit Brady early and often, and you have to be able to do it rushing four people. And the Chiefs weren't able to do that. And the Packers weren't able to do that. And the Saints weren't able to do that. And the Washington football team weren't able to do that. And all four of those teams are probably capable of it. The first three, for damn sure, they're definitely capable of it. But they just didn't do it. Washington football team, I mean, uh, the Chiefs, we'll give them a little bit more slack. Their defensive front isn't as good, but they got some playmakers up there, man. They got Chris Jones. They have D Ford. Like, there's... There's people that can just flat out rush the passer. Um, but they just kind of just didn't do it. Like they didn't show up whenever they needed to. So that's kind of what happened. Um, I said last week, like I was like, this game sucks because when Tom Brady wins, you're like, yeah, dude, you don't bet against Tom Brady, duh. But then when Mahomes wins, it's going to be like, yeah, bro, you bet against the best quarterback in the world. You bet against uh, Mahomes, really? Duh, like you deserve to lose. It felt like a kind of inevitable it felt like a betters like at that point you would almost rather the Packers to win or you would almost rather the Bills to win because then you could be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Tom Brady against Bills, easy money. Or it's, oh, I'm not betting against the Chiefs. But this was the worst case scenario for betters. Um, very quickly, the Super Bowl odds for next season came out. If you want to go check that out, I actually wrote a blog about it. You can check it out on couchfanaticsports.com. Um, the Chiefs open up as the favorites. You know, no duh. That's kind of what we expect. Um, I really liked two lines. The 49ers at plus 14. I mean, uh, plus 1400. I love it. They were a th- overthrow away from winning the Super Bowl two years ago. They're decimated by injuries this year. And now they're getting everybody back. I think they're going to make a run. I think they're surprised some teams. The other one that I like very quickly is the Dolphins at plus 2500. Um, the Dolphins feel like they're a quarterback away. They have a very good defense. They're getting a new offensive coordinator. I love Coach Flo, uh, Brian Flores. And they're going to get some playmakers in the draft. They have two first-round picks. If they can develop Tua into what we all think he could be when he's coming out of the draft, coming out of Alabama, many people had a Hall of Fame caliber grade on him. 
then you know watch out for the Dolphins. They're going to be nice. Also, it's going to be great value if the Dolphins mess around and trade for Deshaun Watson because if they trade for Deshaun Watson, they're going to shoot up to probably plus a thousand. You know, they're going to shoot up to that top five category, and all of a sudden you're going to get some really good value when they win uh, for being you know second or third favorite. But you got them when they're plus twenty five hundred. But anyways, that's going to do it with the NFL talk for now. Um, if I kind of think of anything else to say, I'll probably add it in on the back. Um, but for now, congratulations to the Bucks. Ugh, I don't like saying that. Gross. Uh, congratulations to the LSU guys, Devin White, Leonard Fournette, Kevin Mentor. And now we can uh, we can kind of transition into more of the NBA talk. Okay, to start off the NBA talk, I I kind of talk about the Pelicans. Um, where did they go? Um, the Pelicans kind of all of a sudden, just like on Space Jam, whenever the little puny aliens go take over all of the bodies and they become like superstar basketball players. I think that's what happened with the Pelicans because they went from being awful, like bad, like they were seven and 12 and now they're on a four game win streak. And like, they look good. Like they look really good doing it. They, the last game that they lost was against the Kings. And that's a, I'm looking now, uh, Deon, De'Aaron Fox had 38 points in that game. And I'm pretty sure. Yeah. The Pelicans were up by 10 in the fourth quarter. And the Pelicans lost that game. Then they went out on the third, beat up on the Suns by 22 points, you know, the team with Devin Booker and Chris Paul. Then they went out there against the Pacers, played really well, and then tried so hard to lose that game late. Because I don't know if you, if you're not a Pelicans fan, you may not know this, but speaking directly to Pelicans fans here for a second, the Pelicans are the best first quarter team in basketball. That's not even like, oh my gosh, like they're so good in the first. It's like, no, like they're like net net ratings and they're plus minus and like all that, yada, yada, yada. All that stuff is they're one of the best, if not the best teams in basketball in the first quarter. On the flip side, they are one of the worst, if not the worst team in the third quarter. How does that make sense? I don't know. (laughs) I, I really don't. But they, it's something that they've struggled with for a while now. They've just not been able to hold on to leads. They have not been able to close the gap. I mean, not close the gap, kind of keep the gap open. They like to mess around. They like to drag their feet randomly. And whenever they go a little while without scoring, they do this thing called everyone plays hero ball and just keeps chunking up threes as the other team just keeps going back down the court. But they handle the business. Same thing as the Grizzlies. Handle the business against the Grizzlies. Uh, Zion plays butt off against the Grizzlies. Had, let's see, pulling up the stats now. Zion put up 29 points, 5 assists, 4 rebounds against the Grizzlies in 33 minutes. And then you move into the game on Tuesday night against the Rockets. I'm recording this right after the game on Tuesday, so I'm a little I'm excited about the Pelicans right now. The Pelicans beat the Rockets by 29 points. And now they're a game away from being 500. This is the same Pelicans team that like a week and a half, two weeks ago, I wrote a blog about, about how they need to blow it up. The blog was about the list of players that they needed to trade. Now it's time to f- focus on the future. Now all of a sudden, they're sitting there a game out of 500, and like the future is now. Do I think they still need to make some moves? Yeah, probably. Is this a championship team? No. Will it be one day? Yeah, probably. I'm not even going to give myself that crutch. Yeah, they're going to be a championship caliber team one day soon. I would assume probably two years from now. But I don't, they're not that now, but I don't think we know what they are yet. We've seen some incredibly good basketball from them, and we've seen some incredibly bad basketball from them. And because of that, they're right around 500. They're right around the middle of what they are and what they should be, and I honestly don't know what it is. I do know one thing is certain. This team goes as long as the ball goes. And it sounds so stupid. I don't think he's the captain of this team. I don't think he's the most important player but when Lonzo Ball is playing well, the Pelicans just kind of feel unbeatable. Is that true? I don't know. But it's just kind of how it feels. When Lonzo's out there just knocking down threes and like shutting down the other guy's number one option, the other team's number one option, whenever he can do that, whenever he's feeling himself in transition and hitting Zion down the court, like this team just flat out wins. 
And now Zion and Brandon Ingram are both starting to pick it up on defense. They're both starting to say like, hey, like we need to be better. We got to be better on defense, which, you know, I love because they have been less than ideal <laughs> defensively. Let's let's say that. Um, but they they've been making strides. They've been growing. They've been pushing to get themselves better. And I can respect that. And you see that the efforts there, you see that the playmaking starting to come in for Zion. Um, you're starting to see him pass the ball more. You're starting to see him set up other guys. And if Zion can start to set up other guys, and if he can start to average five to six assists a game, it's going to open up this team so much. It's going to open up him as a player, and it's also going to open up just kind of this team as a whole. Um, it opens up the floor more. And if teams start bum-rushing Zion and putting three guys on every time he gets the ball like they do now, if he can kick it out and find the open man and they start hitting open shots, you got to pick your poison. Are you going to let Zion go one-on-one with somebody or are you going to leave Lonzo Ball with an open shot who has been hitting 55% of his three-pointers over his last you know, handful of games? But this is the Lonzo that we saw pre-bubble last season, that little maybe month or so stretch um, where he just was playing lights out. The Lonzo Ball that we were like, if this guy can grow, like this guy can tap into his potential he's playing at now, this is the player that like was drafted number two overall. And I I kind of I do I do kind of agree with that Lonzo should is probably more of a three and D type player, point guard in transition, and then let someone else run the half court offense because he hasn't been able to. But you see him starting to develop. You see him and it's late. He's it's weird. He's been around the leagues for so long, but he's still so young. Like I keep saying, like, oh my gosh, it's a little late for that. Then I remember he's like 22 or 23 years old. But his biggest problem was he was kind of afraid to drive to the basket. It sounds so ridiculous, but he was. And then a lot of times when he did, he turned the ball over more times than he would convert a layup. He was kind of scared to actually shoot when he attacked the basket. So because of this, it would deter him from actually, you know, doing it. And it would really, really, really clog stuff up. And without having people attack and push the defense, they can kind of sit back and play. And then that's when hero ball starts, when he's just chunking up contested threes. Uh, these last few games, Alonzo's uh, really, really been letting the game come to him. He's developed a step back all of a sudden. Don't know when he did that, but it's pretty nasty. And if he sh- keeps shooting at the rate he's shooting right now, which, I mean, it probably is impossible. He's probably not going to average 55% from three for a season. But, I mean, if he can average 40, 42% from three on the year, if he can give us 15 to 16 points a game with, you know, six rebounds, six assists with the defense he's playing, he's, I mean, he's so valuable. Like, I wouldn't give that up. Like, that's the player who could get $20 million in free agency. Not the player that we saw before this, but before everyone kind of, you know, put Lonzo in the trading block, he wasn't really doing anything. And, it kind of feels like him being on the trading box fueling him. So a lot of people now are like, guys, get him off the block. Like, we got to keep him. Like, Lonzo's like, he's developing. He's going to be a part of this team. And I'm kind of like, man, just keep him out there. Keep the rumors coming in. If he has a little bit of a bad quarter, throw it out. Like, oh, yeah, the Pelicans are looking to move him. Just come out and hit four threes, start the next quarter, start the next half. But I don't know what I, I don't know what got into the Pelicans. I do think they still need to make moves. I think you need to... I think you need to go get a young big slash like wing kind of player. And I think you need to trade one of the guards to do so. JJ Redick needs to be traded no matter what. He is an expiring contract and he's a veteran. He's going to be valuable to another team that is not the Pelicans. We don't need that type of player right now. Send him to the Celtics where, you know, they can hide him on the defensive side and can use a shooting. That's the type of team that can use him. We don't need we don't we don't need him. I, I want to get rid of him, and then we can use those spare minutes to give to Kyrie Lewis Jr. and we can give to Nikhil Alexander Walker and help them with their development and help them to move on and keep them growing and keep them hungry for minutes. Um, Kyrie Lewis Jr. has been playing a decent chunk lately, and he's so impressive. His IQ and kind of hand eye coordination skills is just off the charts. Some of the passes that like I've seen him make so far are just it's nuts. Like it's it's maybe not like the flashiest, like, oh, behind the back, like, you know, no look passes like Lamelo's making, but
but it's like passes that you see like Chris Paul make. And I could see Kyra being a Chris Paul type of player in that aspect of the playmaking of being a pass first point guard. Um, obviously, his biggest comparison is De'Aaron Fox. I would love to have a De'Aaron Fox on our team. I mean, I'm always into getting good players on my favorite teams. That's just kind of a me thing. I don't know about you personally, but I would. I, I really need to see Lewis playing more minutes. Um, I really need to see Nikhil playing more minutes to help with their development because they, at the end of the day, they are the future of this team. They are the future point guard and shooting guard of this team. And I need them to get minutes. I need them to develop. So in a year or two from now, whenever we push all of our chips to the center of the table and go get the, a big superstar, we go make a move for our third superstar and go make a run at the championship. I need those guys to be ready. And the only way you can do that is if they play now. Because you can't send them to the G League. I mean, I, I guess you could, but you know, you don't want to. You want them to develop and you want them to be there with SVG. And I think every fan who is this is very random, but every fan that was upset with SVG, Stan Van Gundy, and calling for his job, you look really foolish right now. I hope you realize that. I hope you can I hope you can look back at this. I mean, all Pelicans fans were we we're all pretty irrational. We're we're used to slow starts that turn into slow seasons, which turn into bad seasons, which turn into lottery picks. But I mean, it was a shortened off season. I mean, yeah, shortened off season. It was a COVID off season. New coach, new system, all kinds of new players. Like you're only returning, what is it, sixty percent of your starting lineup from last season? And really, Zion really didn't get to play much with that starting unit, so it's low-key kind of 40%. Um, yet, we were so quick to want to... Like, there were there are fans who were legit, like, fire Stan Van Gundy, which, a little ridiculous, you know? Ten games into his tenure, fire him. I'm like, oh, man. And, you know, the stuff that we did see was troubling. It was stuff that we've been dealing with for a long time and was just kind of afraid. It's the... Not being able to close late games. It's the sloppy play of turnovers. It's the lack of effort on defense. But it's slowly starting to pick up now. And I'm hoping that an ideal season for me with the Pelicans is finish in, you know, a 6 7 seed, preferably the 6 seed, because it means you finish strong. You played hard the rest of the way. You grew throughout the season. Brandon Ingram and Zion are who we think they are for finishing in a 6 seed. You avoid the playing game. I'm trying to think now. Do you not avoid a playing game? I don't remember. I think it's the, yeah, the 9 and 10 seeds play for the 8 and 7. So, yeah, you avoid the playing game, and you, you know, guarantee yourself with the series, and then all of a sudden you're getting matched up with, you know, the Nuggets or maybe the Jazz or a team like that, a team that you can potentially compete with. I wouldn't hate that at all. Now, kind of moving on from the Pelicans talk, um, I'm, I just get excited about them from time to time. They uh, they deserve from time to time. Not too often, though. we got to keep them hungry. But moving on, uh, one storyline right now that's really kind of sticking out to me is the two centers battling out right now for the MVP, uh, Joel Embiid and Nikhil, Nikhil Jokic. It is nuts that in the league that we're watching right now, the superstar, you know, three-point shooting, Point guard, I mean, just guard heavy league. We're going to have two centers battle it out for the MVP. So let's kind of pull it up. Um, let's start with Embiid. Embiid on the season is averaging 29.3 points, shooting 55% from, from the field, almost 11 rebounds, and three assists. As a center, as a center, he is shooting, let's see, what's his three-point percentage? He is shooting almost 40% from three. He's out here just doing the thing. He's getting a steal and a block per game. So, I mean, on a given night, he's going to put up, you know, 30 points, 11 rebounds, three assists, and he's going to force two turnovers. He's playing out of his mind right now, and he is the favorite for MVP right now among most people. He's doing this only averaging 31, 32 points a game. He is pretty much for everything that I've seen. He is the favorite for the MVP. Um, 
I I think it's probably Jokic. I think Jokic is probably having a better season. Um, but it's also kind of hard to judge whenever you're playing five more minutes per game so far. And again, we are, what, 23 games into the season out of 72? We're, we have a lot of time. Um, a lot of things can happen between now and then. But Jokic is putting up uh, 28 points a game, almost 12 rebounds, almost nine assists. So, I mean, Jokic is putting up almost the same exact amount of points with, you know, two less points, but he's going to average, um, you know, a couple more rebounds and then six more assists. It's a big difference. Um, then you also add in the fact that he's going to get, you know, about the same amount of steals and blocks per game, you know, average about two total of each, you know, about 1.6 steals and about a half a block. So, you know, about two, same as Embiid. Um, looking at their his field goal percentage, he is shooting 40% from three, 1% higher than Embiid, which, you know, is kind of just, it's just kind of splitting hairs. And then field goal percentage. Okay, yeah. Jokic is the MVP. Yeah, he's just, as of right now, Jokic is the MVP. Like, I just broke down the stats. The only thing Embiid leads in is points. He has, like, a couple more points than him. But Jokic has more rebounds. He's shooting at higher clips. He's uh, he's putting up the same. Oh, I'm sorry. Embiid has ha- uh, one more block per game. But um, and, but Embiid, but Jokic is going to have a half more steal. So, you know, it evens out. Um, he's shooting better from two. He's shooting better from three. He's shooting better overall. Like everything he's doing, everything Embiid's doing, Jokic is doing better. And Jokic has done this a lot without um, Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr. has missed a ton of time this season. I don't know what the exact number is, but let's, let's go look. I remember he had a bunch of um, COVID stuff. That forced him to sit out. Let's see. Yeah, he Michael Porter Jr. has played in about half of the team's games so far. So, yeah, Jokic is doing this without one of... It should be the second or option on offense. Maybe the third um, with Jamal Murray as well. But, I don't know. I'm I'm sitting there thinking about it. How do you value MVP? Is it literally the most valuable... Or is it the best statistics? Because those are two different questions. Um, to point it out, I'm going to use I'm going to use the same example that I used kind of last year for the MVP argument for the NFL. Um, I argued, you know, Lamar Jackson had a better season. Lamar Jackson was the MVP in the sense he was the better statistical quarterback. But I thought Russell Wilson was the most valuable to his team. I think if you took Lamar Jackson and replace him with a league average quarterback last in 2019, the Ravens still a playoff team. They still probably win their division. No, they still won their division because of the big Ben injury, but they had a great defense. They had a tremendous running game. They had a great offensive line. They had a great scheme. Um, but then if you look at the Seahawks, the defense was very spotty. Offensive line was bad. Um, weapons were okay. Um, but I think, if you take Russell Wilson off the Seahawks, especially playing in a division with the Rams and the Niners, and then the Cardinals were, you know, Kyler Murray's rookie year, they're not a playoff team. They're probably a top 10. They're probably picking in the top 10 in the NFL draft. But I think if you take Lamar off the Ravens last year, that team's probably going 11-5. You know, if you put... Let's say let's say if you put Kirk Cousins on both of those teams, I mean he's probably he's better than league average, but you know let's just say about there, Kirk Cousins could could have led the Ravens to you know eleven and five, twelve and four. I don't think there's really much of a doubt about that, especially because he's so good in that type of system. Kirk Cousins in Seattle with that offensive line and that defense, that's gonna be a bad team. And this isn't even like being mean to Kirk Cousins, but it's just the type of quarterback he is. He's the type of quarterback that if the situation is perfect. He can thrive. But if it's not perfect, watch out. So looking at it in that sense, I'll probably have to do a little bit deeper of a breakdown of the two teams, the Sixers and the Nuggets. But, I mean, the Nuggets coming into this year, they lost some pretty key pieces. I mean, they lost uh, Jeremiah Grant. They lost a couple other guys to free agency. And a lot of people were projecting them to 
either, you know, be like a lower seed or maybe even miss the playoffs because a lot of people feel the same way that I do that I could see a lot of teams finishing anywhere between 6 and 12 in the Western Conference. Uh, maybe 7, 7 through 12 probably. I thought coming into the year there's only a handful of locks to absolutely make the playoffs. The Nuggets were actually one of my locks, but for some reason some people didn't think so. Um, those people are crazy, but to be fair, it was still you know an argument. Sixers, on the other hand, some people actually had them you know, going to the finals or competing in the East, like making it to the Eastern Conference Finals. To be fair, again, I didn't really see that happening, but they are out there, you know, balling and beats healthy again. Uh, ben Simmons is playing well. Tobias Harris is playing well. Shake Milton's, you know, doing the thing as a young guy. Um, but I think Jokic, as of now, has the slight edge for me. Um, I also think it's way too early to be talking about this. This is the same thing that we do with Russell Wilson every year after week four. Like, oh my God, can you believe Russell Wilson never, never won an MVP? And then he'll like be okay the rest of the year. And they're just going to be like, oh, okay. Yeah, Russ doesn't get that. And then the next season, we're going to do that over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, actually, speaking of Russell Wilson, kind of touch on this for a second because we didn't really talk about it in the Super Bowl stuff. Our report came out. Russell Wilson is kind of annoyed with the Seattle, just never protecting him. He's been sacked the most times uh, over the last nine seasons, almost 400 times. And that kind of leaked from his camp. He didn't really want it to come out, but he, um, so then he made a statement saying like, yeah, it's true. Like I, I just, I, like, I'm tired of getting hit. I'm tired. I just want to be upright. He's like, it's nothing in Seattle. I love Seattle. I love playing here. I'm not asking to be traded. All I'm asking is to please, you know, focus on improving the line to protect me and protect my teammates better so we can go win some games. Um, number one, yes, I a hundred percent agree with him. He has never once been protected while being in Seattle, but I know a place in Louisiana that has a pretty good offensive line and a pretty good coach and it's a pretty good talent. Russ, if you ever want to come. <laughs> Just kidding. But really, yeah, come. Um, yeah, as Saints fans, um, if you're not a Saints fan, you may not know this, but all Saints fans believe we are getting every single quarterback on the free agency market right now and trade market. So if you're new to this thing, buckle up because it's going to be a ride. But Russ bringing this up probably shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Um, at least I'm not surprised. If I was, you know, getting – if he's played nine seasons, he's probably around 31 right now, 29 to 31, that range. Um, I would probably be tired of getting hit too. I would probably be tired of running for my life and running circles around everybody for, you know, nine years by now. Like he's, he's getting older. Like he doesn't want to get hit anymore, which, I mean, nobody ever wants to get hit, but he's starting to realize that like he needs to say these things. Um, all power to you, Seattle. You need to protect him because this – this is your most valuable asset. This is how I felt about the Bengals, too, coming into last offseason. Like, you know you're going to draft Joe Burrow. I've had this conversation so many times on the podcast. Um, if you're new here, I'll let you hear, too. You knew you were going to get Joe Burrow. You didn't invest a single dollar into the offensive line. You decided to buy a Ferrari and then, like, take the locks off of it and um, and, like, leave it outside and then, like, leave the keys inside of it. And then, like, you drew, you put, like, a note on the door. It's like, please don't steal my car. Like, please don't break into my car. That's what you did. There was all pro-caliber players available in the free agency market last year as offensive linemen. You didn't get a single guy. Joe Burrow ended up, to, he destroyed his knee. I was going to say tore his ACL. He tore his ACL. He tore his meniscus. He tore his, uh, you know, PCL. He tore his everything. He had bone damage. They had to completely reconstruct his knee because you didn't want to spend a little money and protect them. It's the easiest investment for a team to make. If you have a really good quarterback, you know, generational type quarterback like Watson or Russell Wilson or Joe Burrow, if you have one of those guys and then you also have a really good offensive line in front of them, you're going to win some ball games. You're going to move the football because if you have a good offensive line, your quarterback has time. Weapons will eventually get open. If you have a good offensive line, you can run block. The running back is going to find a hole. doesn't matter who it is. They will find a hole eventually. Um, and as we kind of believe here, running backs are pretty replaceable. So, yeah, even if you don't have a good running back, if you have a good offensive line, he will play well. But it's it's 
it blows my mind that people still don't invest in offensive line whenever they have a quarterback like that. But anyways, it's I kind of just had to talk about that for a minute. Um, last thing on the NBA I kind of want to touch on before I move into some MLB talk is the LeBron James stuff going on right now is kind of crazy. The, the what he's doing right now at you know year eighteen, I think he's thirty six or thirty seven. Um, putting up just I'm gonna pull it up, but he's averaging his lowest minutes per game like in his career. And you're like, oh wow, LeBron's like not even doing anything, huh? And he's still averaging 27 minutes. I'm sorry, 25 minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at points. That's I was about to say that's not that high. He's still averaging almost 35 minutes a game. Um, looking at his stats, he's averaging 26 points, eight rebounds, and eight assists. I mean, honestly, LeBron should probably be in the NBA, the MVP cat. Uh, I mean, he's definitely in the discussion. He has been by everybody. He low-key might be the front runner, or he should be. Um, he's been playing, you know, incredible. And I say that, then I just remember that Jokic has more points than like four more rebounds and four more assists. So, never mind. But he's, and I mean, he's just, he's balling. Uh, I mean, I said the same thing about Jokic and Embiid, but uh, looking at, his stats, he's, his field goal percentage is almost 50%. This is the highest three-point percentage he has in his entire career at 40%. The only t- other time he's averaged 40 or more was in Miami in uh, 2012 to 2013. He averaged uh, 40, 40.6%. Yeah, so, I mean, LeBron's just doing it right now. He's uh, It's kind of wild that in his age, what, 36, 37 season, is whenever he decided to become just, you know, uh, just wet from behind the arc, just become just a, an incredible uh, three-point shooter. It's wild that, like, whenever LeBron first came into the league, um, he wasn't uh, he wasn't a polished shooter. He wasn't really great at shooting. Um, and then to see him develop into what he has kind of developed into as a shooter, it's, you know, it's pretty respectable. You have to be able to respect what he has done and what he, how he has grown and how even after 18 years, he's still finding ways to get better and better and better and more dominant in this league. But um, it's it's just kind of one of those things like being an all-time great, that's kind of just what they do. You ask yourself, how are they still doing it? You know, looking at Tom Brady right now, like looking at like the GOATs of Tom Brady and Michael Jordan and LeBron James and all these guys who were on just the absolute highest level and the pedestal of everything for so long. That's what separates them from, you know, the really, really good players. What separates LeBron and Jordan from, you know, who somebody that was just extremely, extremely good. Like, I'm kind of struggling off the top of my head, but like, let's just go to Tom Brady. What separates Tom Brady from like an Aaron Rodgers is the fact that he did, he, won, you know, six more championships. What separates Tom Brady from a Brett Favre is his just continue high level of play for just so long. And Brett Favre played for a long time, but Brett Favre's play, you know, declined and declined and declined and declined. And then even looking at, I mean, even looking at Peyton Manning and Drew Brees, like, like, I mean, if we're being honest here, the player talent peak of Manning, Rogers, Breeze, where it was all higher than Brady for talent-wise, but Brady's forty-three years old, and his ball looks like it has just as much zip as ever. Maybe you know a touch off, but I mean it's still fine. Breeze and Manning, whenever they hit thirty-eight, thirty-nine, they just couldn't throw past twenty yards anymore. Like that's the difference. Like they hit these oldest stages, and they still find ways to get better and even improve, and it's so impressive. And what LeBron doing is doing right now is crazy. And it's so annoying that as fans, and it starts with the media, honestly, that we have to compare these players and compare and compare and compare and start arguments. And what happens is whenever you do that, you have to disrespect somebody and you have to pick a side, and you're just not allowed to like appreciate the greatness anymore. As fans, we got to be better at that. we got to stop doing that because – the amount of either LeBron haters or full-on LeBron lovers and hate Jordan and stuff like that, like, 
them, them guys don't want to do that. LeBron James doesn't want you to hate Michael Jordan for loving him. And Michael Jordan doesn't want you to hate LeBron James for loving him. It goes both ways. Um, I was also looking at uh, like the Jordan-Kobe relationship. People used to tear down Kobe all the time uh, when pe- other people try and compare him to Michael Jordan. When Michael Jordan himself would compare Kobe to him. It's stuff like that. Um, you'd think that after this amount of time, after everything would happen with Kobe, Kobe, we would stop being just absolute animals and stop being so negative towards each other. But we really need to be better at that. Anyways, let's kind of let's move into the MLB talk to kind of wrap this up. Uh, we have some pretty big news about the MLB. So Rob Manford hates baseball. We kind of all know that. We've kind of already known that. Um He's a big-time, yeah, hater of baseball. So, in case you haven't noticed, over the last couple of years, there's been kind of a difference in baseball and, like, the actual balls itself. Home runs have risen. Runs have risen. Uh, pitching blisters have risen. Uh, yet, the MLB always denied, you know, changing the ball, juicing the ball, yada, yada, yada. But now, all of a sudden, uh, almost said Roger Goodell. No, from one bad commissioner to another, um, Rob Manford denies the fact that like he always denied the fact that the balls were juiced, but he just announced that they're going to be deadening the baseballs. Excuse me, Rob. Um, yes, over here. Yes. Uh, um, why would you have to deaden a baseball if it was never juiced in the first place? Okay, cool. I'll hang up and listen. That doesn't make any sense. He said what they're going to do to the baseballs are going to be the equivalent of quote moving the fences back five feet. I thought I thought you never messed with the balls. The balls should be fine because you never messed with them. That's what you told us. You told us that the balls were never in question. They were always they were the same balls that they've always been, regardless of every single like statistic ever saying that it's not. And every scientist to break one down saying no, it's like they put a bouncy ball in these balls. Cause they're wound so tight. Yet now all of a sudden, oh, we have to deaden the baseballs because we got to try and control the home run rates. Nah, dude, you know what you're doing. Also, we don't care as fans. We would we we're cool with the you know I'm at least I am I'm cool with the with the bouncy balls. I'm cool with watching a bunch of homers. Like, I what was the best? Let's break it down like this. What was the best and most popular baseballs ever been? When was the most fun time to ever watch baseball? It was during the steroid era. Now, for health implications and for long-term health of our athletes, the steroid era can't exist anymore. People just can't be on steroids because it's so bad for your long-term health. But why not just have the same effect by just juicing the baseball? And that's what he did. But if you can do it without finding a way from the pitchers to, you know, get blisters and get messed up, yada, 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 then just do it. Who cares? I mean, sure, the pitcher's ERAs might be a little bigger, but you know what? Like, I I don't care. I would rather see the extra home run or two a game. I would rather see... Okay, so I kind of broke it down like this on the, the YouTube video. What's the most exciting part of a baseball game? Or kind of any sports game, like, in general. It's the anticipation. So whenever somebody hits a fly ball that's deep and you know it's got a shot, the entire stadium... Starts to slowly rise, like you're slowly going up, like like you can do it right now. You know what I'm talking about. You slowly go up, and then balls back, 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 and then it's like caught at the one track, and every, you hear the entire stadium like groan. It goes, oh, or at the same time, it's going back, 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 and you see the outfielder jump up, and everybody holds their breath, and then it gets right over, and then you hear just Rah! like everybody just starts freaking out. You just hear a roar of a crowd. That's the best part of the game. That's the most like exciting and thrilling part of baseball. And you know what adds to that? Whenever more like you have a higher chance to hit a home run because the balls are gonna fly further. I mean, if you don't want to juice the players, juice the ball. I'm cool with it. But then don't act like don't act like none of this stuff exists. Don't act and play stupid this entire time. Then all of a sudden say this. But then whenever they even ask you, saying like, "Hey, why would we need a dead in baseballs if they were never juiced?" For you just act dumb, be like, oh, the home rate and run rates up. We're just going for competitive balance. No, dude, you're not going for competitive balance. You got called out in your bowl, and now you're afraid to get caught because everybody hates you because you mishandled the Astros situation. You mishandled the the Red Sox situation. Then you mishandled every other situation of every other person that you misused video from. And everybody hates you for it. 
because you're the guy who is chief of the let's destroy baseball crowd by implementing every single piece of play rule ever that all it does is destroy the game because I don't know about you, but the little five minutes you're going to save on a game from all these stupid rules, that's not going to make me watch it any more or less. And it's not going to make anyone else watch it any more or less. You want you want to act you want to actually speed up the game a little. You know what? Pitch clock. That's fine. You can do that. Here's an idea: maybe less time for commercial breaks. Commercial breaks now are two and a half to three minutes. When a few years ago they were a minute and a half. By a few years ago, I mean it was you know, probably twenty years ago. But that's the type of stuff that's cutting into actual like time. In actual minutes. And I gotta be honest, like nobody has a problem watching a three and a half hour football game. Yet all of a sudden I'm supposed to believe that people have a problem watching a three hour baseball game. I don't believe that. I think if you like baseball, then you're gonna watch baseball. But Rob Manfred's kind of just too worried about the people who don't actually like baseball. He wants to try and make them like it. But dude, if they don't like the sport, who cares? Well, I don't like baseball. It's boring. Okay, well, you sound dumb. You don't you don't know the game. Like that's why you think it's boring because you don't understand it. And yep, it's the easiest cop out answer ever for saying why somebody doesn't like it. Oh, it's because they don't understand it. Yeah, it's it's a cop out, but it's the truth. And people that don't like baseball, you speeding up the game by five to ten minutes isn't gonna make a difference. But what it will do is you're gonna lose people who whenever you mess with the integrity of the game, whenever you handcuff managers and say, hey, Oh, you put this pitcher in, and he just gave up a leadoff double and then a homer right after, and all of a sudden you're down by one? Yeah, you just got to keep him in now. You got to keep him in for one more batter. That's a really stupid rule. The three batter minimum rule is a really stupid rule. It's really stupid. You know what else is really stupid? Me having to watch people like freaking, I don't even know. Like, I, I don't want to watch David Price swing the bat. You know what I mean? I don't want to. I don't. I've made this argument so many times, but like, if my pitcher is shoving in the seventh inning, he comes up with the bases loaded, two outs. I shouldn't have to make the decision of do I go for runs here, or do I keep my stud pitcher in who's shoving? It should be, hey, you know what? My stud pitcher's shoving, and now David Ortiz is up with the bases loaded. That should be the scenario as we're discussing here. And then the, some people who are like, oh yay, but we have we have good pitchers that can hit. Like, I saw Mets fans talking about this. Like, Jacob deGrom, he can really swing it. Yeah, his Jacob deGrom's OPS plus is a 28. If Jacob deGrom's such a hit, good hitter, use him as a DH. Give fielders day offs and DH Jacob deGrom. But he's not. He's not a good hitter. He's a good hitter for a pitcher. Yeah. But his OPS plus is a 28. A 28. He's 82% worse than a league average hitter. That's the type of guy who is swinging the bat. And these pitchers, a lot of times, they don't pick up a bat since high school, and then all of a sudden they got to come in and face 90-mile-per-hour sliders. It's just not safe. It's not healthy for them. Like, it's not good for them. And injuries happen because of stupid stuff like this. And as a Red Sox fan, I have had pitchers get hurt on the base paths. In the years that we've made the playoffs, pitchers that would be in the starting rotation that couldn't pitch in the playoffs because of it. I'm looking at you, Stephen Wright, in Los Angeles. Is it all stupid? Yes. Should they be able to? Yeah, probably. But the, the should like should they be able to run the bases without getting hurt? Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's just, it's just not the reality. It's not the reality of the situation. And it all stems from nowadays, pitchers just don't pick up a bat past high school. And a lot of times they don't pick up a bat in high school. And regardless of how you feel about it, that's how the game is moving. And we just got to roll with it. And I've being an American League guy, I'm a big DH guy. I think the DH should exist for everybody. And guess what? If you don't want to use a DH that day, if your pitcher is such a good hitter, cool, use a DH for your second baseman and DH somebody. But the whole argument for it is just, against it, is just stupid. Also, get rid of blackouts. I should be able to, I can watch the Red Sox every game of the year whenever I play for MLB.tv, but whenever they go to Houston or if they go to uh, Arlington, all of a sudden I can't watch the games because I live within six to eight hour drive of them. It's stupid. I pay you you directly, MLB, the owner of the content, $100 a year to be able to watch those games. And you just don't allow it. There's places in the Midwest where they block out 10 or about, I think it's 10 is the most. Um, They block out 10 teams. That's a third of the league. 
mixing in off days and mixing in stuff like that. And then, you know, if you do it all perfectly, there can legit be days where you don't get to watch a single game. You don't catch a single game, even though you pay for MB.TV. That's absurd. And lastly, when it comes to marketing, the game of baseball, the worst thing you can do is not do what the NBA and the NFL is doing and what the NBA started and what the NBA created called as soon as a highlight starts, you post it on social media and you spread it like wildfire. Steph Curry became the most popular person on the face of the planet. Maybe not, but one of the most popular people on the planet because every time he hit a three-pointer since 2013, 2014, it was on Twitter within a minute. It was Steph Curry three, bang, bang, like that, Twitter. Bang, it's in. Bang, it's on Twitter. Just like that. And that's how the game grows because you're marketing the game on social media and you're getting it to the younger audience and they're more likely to say, wow, who's this guy? Like He can shoot from really far. Or like LeBron James dunks. Whoa, what was that? Like that guy's good. That's cool. You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. Dame Lillard hits a half-court shot, I mean, you know, from the logo to win a playoff series. That should be on on loop everywhere. That should be on loop forever because it's cool moments like that that attract the younger audience and that attract more fans. But overall, the MLB, you got to do an overhaul at this point. I don't – I want to say that Manfred's going to get fired, but I don't think he ever will, and that's just kind of the sad reality. But anyways, that's pretty much going to do it for this episode. Uh, kind of wrap up here. Um, as I said, kind of in the beginning of the episode or, you know, past me talking to y'all it's probably gonna be the intro for a little while um just if you if you don't mind going check out the description of the episode you can follow all my social media accounts you can find us at couchfanaticsports.com for the blogs and you can also you know check out the youtube channel checking out uh stuff like that we're actually viral on tiktok we have hit a million views on one video half a million views on another and then the other one's about to hit 100k so i mean We've been we've been kind of blowing up on TikTok right now. Hopefully that leads to some more podcast viewers, uh, some more interactions on other platforms as well. But yeah, I got a I got a couple of big things in the works uh, coming for the podcast listeners soon. So just kind of be on the lookout for that. I'll be uh, throwing some hints around on social media, teasing it up a little bit. Uh, I mean, if you think you might know what's going on, don't be afraid to shoot out a tweet. Maybe DM me, and I'll let you know if you're right. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty much going to do it for today. Uh, thank you, as always, speaking to the individual listener listening to this. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, thank everyone who listens. And uh, I really hope you all enjoyed the episode. Um, as always, please uh, download, rate, subscribe. Um, let me know. Leave a review on what you think of the pod. And, yeah, just be on the lookout because we have some special things in the works right now. So, anyways, I will see you guys next week. Congrats to the Bucks And... I'm about to go watch the Pelicans look to win their fifth straight game. But anyways, see you guys next week. Love you guys.